So how, on God's gray earth, did this? Someone to understand them, and you just may be the one. And this. No heartache, so no longer lonely. Nights of waiting finally won me. Happiness is all rolled up in you. And now with you as inspiration, I look forward to destination. Sunny, bright, but once before. And even this. I know that something very strange has happened to my brain. I'm either feeling very good or else I am insane. The seeds of doubts you planted have started to grow wild And I feel that I must yield for the wisdom of a child And it's love you bring Become this Listening to Detours and Outliers, the podcast where we take a closer look at that one album in an artist's discography that sticks out like a sore thumb. It may be their best album, or it may be their worst album, but either way, it's that one album where the artist was so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Uh, this week on the panel, we have Matthew Marr, Logan Renard. My name is Scott Livingston, and we do have a special guest this week, Rebecca Davila, um, aggressive cat person and pool shark. Uh, she works for the Swallow Hill Music Group Company, the Association. Com- Association. There you go. So we are we're pleased to have her on what will be the first in our all-instrumental April, where we're going to be covering instrumental albums by people who generally don't do instrumental albums. Um and this week we have a special one for our first one. We got uh, Michael Nesmith's The Wichita Train Whistle Sings, which was released in 1968. So um, I guess first things first, um, who is Michael Nesmith? Michael Nesmith is a multifaceted guy. Um, I like to think of him as the complicated monkey. Uh, very innovative person, not just the guitarist and singer in the Monkees, but he's had a long career of uh, video production. He uh, introduced the concept of the music video, and uh, he was the executive producer of Repo Man, amongst a lot of other incredible My favorite things. film. <laughs> Solidly top five yeah. for me. Incredible film. And he had a green hat. He so. had a green hat. Some say it wasn't his original hat. No. Repo Man's Milwaukee, though. Yeah. (laughs) It's better than Repo the Musical, but, you know, that's the whole other story. (laughs) Is there really a Repo the Musical? Not only that, but it features Paris Hilton. 
Yeah, it's not what you would think. It, 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 you know, there's cult movies, and then there's movies that are trying to be cult movies, and... Uh, and then Broadway musical knockoffs. Yeah, this one is. <laughs> this one's trying a little too hard. You can see the the flop sweat, but that's not the case with um. Or maybe it is. This particular album, it's well, it's not technically Michael Nesmith's first solo album because it's not technically his album. He was still under contract with the Monkees at the time, so he wasn't allowed to you know record or sing or play on anyone else's stuff. But he was allowed to produce, so he produced an album by a group he called the Wichita Train Whistle, which is called the Wichita Train Whistle Sings. And um, there are various uh, counter-arguments about why this album was recorded, but the, um, the general consensus is Mike had a tax write-off that he wanted to... <laughs> spend money on making a record rather than giving it to the IRS, so he opted he to... He made too much damn money. He made too much damn money. <laughs> it's a good problem to a, have. a problem <laughs> I'm sure we're all familiar with. Right? Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. yeah, yeah. It's I a problem that, that Nez himself would not have in another two to three years. So. I had to buy a whole other Learjet. To... <laughs> so, so apparently he did... He not only hired the best studio musicians in town, he hired all of them over the weekend so they would charge double and then had it catered by the fanciest restaurant in town and even provided an open bar which you know fifty thousand dollars worth of booze yes in 1967 money so this is in two days yes two days (laughs) one microphone 60 musicians all playing what are you know mike did write you know a handful of songs for the monkeys they're generally fairly you know, country and western flavored simple folk rock songs. And this has been arranged, I wouldn't say for a big band. This is like uh, um, uh, the Tijuana Brass plays uh, kind of elevator versions of Monkey's songs. Something like that, yeah. It's not, mm. it's not quite, yeah, Muzak, but it's not quite big band and it's not orchestral and. There are some strange... <laughs> well, kind of comes apart at the seams in some points. Yeah. It's a little but avant-garde. deliberately. Yes. It definitely has that 60s hipster it's, instrumental sound. Yes. Yeah. This, yeah, I, I want a complicated martini, you know, in a... Uh, yes. Uh, art Deco bar or something. Right. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. There's something about this that's very... This is like party party album for your... Really, really cool swinging sixties uh, party, you know. Yeah. So it's kind of Esquivel esque with like bits of John Cage, and there's like banjo that's very prominent in a couple of yeah, that tracks. Was cool. <laughs> so hipster space grandpa music. Exactly. So. So can we say as a detour and outlier, this would be a a, a monkeys detour, a Nesmith outlier? Um. Well, it, certainly for the monkeys, they did not. I mean, it was the monkey's usual horn arranger, Shorty Rogers, who wrote all the charts. But first of all, the monkeys did not release a lot of instrumental tracks. I mean, Nez and his solo career did a few later, but his work is far more stripped down in a country rock kind of vein. I mean, he did like a New Age album in the 90s that's mostly instrumental, but that is meant to be soothing background music and not... I mean, this is as abrasive and jarring as non-vocal music can be in a lot of ways. So, 
it caught a lot of monkeys fans off guard. I think they were expecting the new great monkeys performance. And I think it's really ironic that it's called Wichita Train Whistle Sings and it's completely instrumental album. Yes. Yeah, it makes you think of like Wichita Lineman or it's got like, it, yeah, be, because of the stuff that Nesmith has done in the past, it's like, oh, it's going to be kind of, you know, folky country, right? From the title, you get this. Yeah, yeah. It sort of implies exactly what you'd expect from... Hobos and, and yeah, riding the rails. And, and it's, uh, it is not that. No, this oh. is... Is this the first one that we've done that's, I mean, the more I think about it, all of the albums we've done may partially fall under this, but in the, you know, we have the, the kind of missing a key member outliers. We yeah. have a genre mixing or genre jumping kind of category. Those, that, those seem to be the most, uh, you know, uh, common ones. Yeah. Is this the first tax shelter album that yeah. we've, like, <laughs> where that's the most overt? I it's, mean, it's again, you possible. can, you yeah, can make the argument that they've all been that in the eyes yeah. of a record label or, or somebody but this one and and Ness has denied it I mean everyone else I mean Hal Blaine who recently departed said it was definitely that but Ness said he did this because this is the kind of record he wanted to do and I think he also probably saw the writing on the wall and he wasn't going to have 50,000 to spend on a record ever again because yeah. this was the, the, the monkeys were on the backslide by you know, this was recorded in November of 67 and came out in 68, so... This was after Headquarters, which was, you know, uh, Nez was really pushing for the monkeys to have more creative control, and they really yeah. took off with it. Well, yeah. instrumental versions of, of vocal music was pretty popular in the 60s. I mean, that was a, that was a fairly common thing to happen. Yes. And uh, so, so in that sense, I, I suppose it is, it's of, his t of its time. Yes, but but then again, you know, maybe maybe the 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 goal for um, maybe the goal for Nesmith here was was to was to have that opportunity of um, a lot of you know really good musicians um, play with his stuff. Should we take a take a minute? I mean, R.I.P. Hal Blaine. Yeah, for real. Uh, yeah, yeah the, speaking of one the really of the good most uh, yeah. prolific drummers of all time, you've heard him. A million times, even if Without you have never heard of them before. Um, but uh, yeah, we should. I mean, we should talk about the Wrecking Crew and because this is almost this is all yeah. of the, the Wrecking, Wrecking Crew, crew well, personnel. So yeah, the, so the Wrecking Crew were kind of the like the the go to uh, top. It was a you know a loose group of people, although there were there are a couple of of key people, Hal Blaine and uh, Tommy Tedesco being two of them that are on this. Yeah. Um, but they were the they were the first call sessions guys in LA. And one of the interesting things that in the sixties, you didn't play if you were really lucky, you got to sing a little bit on your own album. They anything that was popular music that was released out of LA was this group of people and not the people on the cover of the record. They might have gotten to Sing a but little time, bit. Time is money, but time is money, and, and this was a, a, a well-oiled machine, and they could, you know, they were known they for could cranking out, out, yeah, hit album in a day, yeah, mm -hmm. or this album, which sounds like it was thoroughly nuts within a weekend, you know, or what's the the Brian Will the or Smile never? Well, yeah, Smile. There's still <laughs> forty years later, still yeah, some the, guys working on that. In the 21st century, you know, uh, producers use use samples. And um, sequencers, um, these were human samplers and sequencers. They could do anything you asked them to, and they could do it in time and in tune. 
Yes. And um, quickly and and you know they were expensive, but you know they were worth it. Well, but before we get too deep into the the album, I just I've always thought there's this interesting thing about the monkeys and the Wrecking Crew and just the the studio yeah. system in 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 L.A. You know, in the '60s. Um, and that's the, you know, the monkeys kind of when they crashed and burned caught a lot of shit for, geez, they can't play their own instruments. You know, they can't, which they, by the time people were critiquing that, they absolutely could. Yeah. yeah. But 100% of popular music at the time was not played by the people who, you know, are, were supposedly in the band. It was played by the same. So the monkeys are no more fake than almost all other popular music of the time. And so that's really kind of a, um, a funny thing to me that I, you know, it's like, yeah, but nobody, yeah, the mamas and the papas, like, or like the birds, uh, the birds birds. certainly had, you know, talented people involved. They get in the studio, they'd have the wrecking crew play the song. I just, I just listened to a thing with Jefferson or with, uh, with Yorma from, you know, Jefferson airplane. And he was like, we actually did play on our first couple of records, which was really crazy at the time, albeit with a boatload of production elements that are of that time and didn't have anything to do with their music. But uh, he was like, yeah, we had to audition over and over and over in front of all these you know, studio execs and engineers and stuff to prove that we could actually play before we were allowed to go anywhere near instruments in a studio. Like that was just not the way that they ran that business. Yeah. at the time and so while this seems kind of like a crazy thing that you know you wouldn't really you know it's my name on the album it was like yeah. what'd you do it was like well I showed up while this band of awesome you know shredders recorded music in the other room you know <laughs> <laughs> well and, and the monkeys did get the most flack for that and I think Nez particularly has always had a bit of a chip on his shoulder about that and I think that may also be, aside from the tax write-off, part of why he did this album is to mm-hmm. show that I can write songs. Yeah, I can make music. I can yeah. write really big, big, complicated, weird songs. And this was, I mean, because I don't think he he did this to sell a lot of records. I mean, it it sold to a handful of, you know, monkey completists about, and that was it. Yeah, I think I, I think I saw it. it charted at 144 yeah that sounds like about that. right yeah i mean that's you know that's probably i mean i don't know if that's enough to make the money back or not you know um well it's at fifty thousand dollars paying his mortgage but um yeah so i i think it, and that is also part of what he was doing is he may have also seen that the monkeys thing had a limited lifespan as pop fads do and was trying to put out a calling card uh, for a second career after this went down because he had just scored um, Linda Ronstadt's first big hit with different drums. So, oh wow, yeah, that's right. So he was probably trying to yeah. find a way to to make some money when this TV show, which you know, got canceled in '68, and then the movie which flopped. TV shows do. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, well, well and she- they weren't, you know, he they weren't reinterpreting popular monkeys hits these were all like specifically nesmith penned this was his baby yeah you know? i mean most of the tracks on here weren't even released at the time this Didn't album even came see out the light of day until the reissues further yeah they the all came out as bonus tracks in the 90s or something so mm-hmm. people didn't know how these songs went so they weren't like instrumental versions of songs they knew they were instrumental versions of songs they'd never heard yeah. so you know they were he was probably you know trying to and again, since he couldn't write and produce under his own name, this may have been his best way of like 
showcasing his songwriting ability in one go without, you know. Right, right. I mean, how many how many opportunities do, would you have to do something? You know, you, you've written a bunch of songs, and, and just to see how it's going to turn out yeah. outside of your own head or in, outside of your own living room, but with, with a bunch of very talented musicians putting their spin on it. Yeah. I yep. imagine, uh, like, Nesmith having one of those late 60s, 70s styles, grandiose television specials where it's just him. And that would just be like the accompaniment that would come with it. Exactly. I, I've always, it's almost felt like a karaoke record. I would love for like Tony Bennett or someone to does just put the lyrics on top in. of it. And All right, here's a deep cut. Does this sync up with Repo Man if you start it? Like just <laughs> I, I, I'm going to say no probably one tried not. That. We'll have to try that. Yeah. Yeah. Mind-blowing <laughs> It sounds a lot like a film soundtrack. It really does mm-hmm. have these... Well, some of it is kind of, you know, very passive as a lot of instrumental music is, but some of it is, you know, it's not good in the background. There's, there's, you know, things falling down. There's banter, drunken banter. (laughs) Don't you dare denigrate the banjo. (laughs) Yes. But yes, it it is not, it's not like, yeah, you know, you can't fall asleep to this. There are blaring trumpets in your ear and they're going to get your attention whether you want it or not so hogan's heroes style marching band yeah there's there's a lot this is you know everything but the kitchen sink really probably not music to yoga by yeah no no No. parts of it remind me of like a chuck mangione record yeah i mean there's there's a lot of different stuff going in but definitely yes maybe chuck claims this is one of his influences maybe (laughs) if ever there was an album that had flugelhorn on it it would the Jimi Hendrix of the Poodle. <laughs> Indeed. Well, shall we dive in? I mean, track one is uh, Nine Times Blue. Let's do this. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> this is very uh, George Martin E. I was thinking that, like almost sacrilege to think. But yeah. Beatles reprise. The, yeah, side two of Yellow Submarine soundtrack. Yeah. Kind of George Martin. Got the hole in me pocket. Of course. It's a samba. Right. Is that a Weedo? What is that? It might be. I don't know. Well, there you go. I mean, I think the first one is very classical sounding or tempting to sound. I mean, that organ part in the, the very beginning is kind of Bach-like until the... The drums kick in and then it sounds like a um, whiter shade of pale. But yeah, profile. Yeah, not. It's a little prone. Do you know, were these, uh, Nesmith, these were all written by him. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Did he, um, 
new th- about his um, technique? Did he write most of these on acoustic guitar and just let someone else try them out? Yeah, yeah. Shorty I, Rogers was the uh, arranger, and yeah, these are probably so that probably has as much to do with him as yeah, uh, yeah. as anything. Yeah, I'm sure Mike pushed him to go as crazy as he could, but Shorty was the but one. But the instrumentation is really inventive. cool. Yeah, yeah, the, the, where you, the the banjo kicks in halfway through, and they get that sort of weird Latin thing going, and. I mean, and this is one of the songs that had not been released at the time. In fact, would not be released until Mike's first solo album in 1970. Really? Yeah. Okay. So nobody knew how the words went. And oh. oh, okay. Yeah, the... Gotcha. And not. it does showcase one of Nez's quirkier habits of naming his songs with uh, titles that have nothing to do with the lyrics or anything at all. I mean, that will pop up a lot, not only on this album, but throughout his career. So I can't imagine what some, you know, teeny bopper in 1968 thought nine times blue meant when they popped this on. But it is, uh, it is interesting. Nine times blue. Yes. I'm still not really sure what it means, but it's, it's. I mean, in its more traditional form, it is more of a sad song. But in this version, it's. Well, in the, in- you know, the instrumental, you can, you know, you can. Imagine just about anything, I suppose. That is true. Mm-hmm. It's whatever you want it to be. But it's probably a drug reference, right? I think everything's you know? a drug reference yeah. in the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> Did a, so um, how many of these were recorded by the Monkees? Uh, well, nine out of the ten of them were recorded. Most of them were not released at the time. But every, okay. I, I think that was also part of his contract is he couldn't write for anyone else unless he submitted it to the Monkees. The Monkees would frequently you know, reject what he submitted, like... A different drum, but he had to at least offer it, you know, first glance to them. So, oh well, yeah, cool. It's the like a big uh, fanfare for the album. Yeah, it's a good way to, to kick it off. I mean, it, as much as anything can give you an idea of what's going to happen next, chugs um, it along down the rails. There you go. I mean, it's slower than the original, but it's still a good, you know, fanfare opening. I mean, it's no Escape from New York, but. <laughs> No <laughs> word. Well, shall we go on to the next one? Again, the oddly titled Carlisle Wheeling. Spectre have anything to do with this? Um, he he hired most of the same guys at some point. I don't know. Okay, not enough reverb, but not directly. No. This is getting there though. This yeah, is very, it's pretty close. very Spectre <laughs> production. I agree. Hints of Bacharach too. Yeah, definitely. How much did they have to pay Sinatra to stand in the corner and smoke a cigarette? That's a very swingy, again, bachelor pad piece. 
dig the drumming. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Speaking of Hal Blaine. Yeah. Well, I think they got Hal Blaine and Earl Palmer like playing through oh, the whole thing. So they got, yeah, they got like two drums and eight basses and 12 guitars or something. So, so were there, was this more or less live in the studio then? Were there overdubs yeah. involved or is it pretty I, much... Um, from what I understand, it was mostly done with like just one big mic hanging over the ceiling and done like very old so school. So they probably went through the parts once or twice and then just hit record. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and these are the only guys who could afford to do that right, with. Right, so. yeah, yeah. It's definitely a very sort of almost Tito Puente, uh, Louis Prima kind of vibe to this too, I think. I mean, Nez gets a lot of credit for being the longer but he did a lot of like Latin samba food and stuff. It's also pretty big at the top, you know, that, again, these are like these like loungy, like yeah. instrumental. Javier Cugats. And it's like, yeah. it's cool shit that your parents would have. You know? yeah. yeah. It's like very much that vibe. And, and uh, I don't know, yeah, every, every uh, like jazz musician has to go through their stage where they learn all about like Latin rhythms and stuff like that because in the, you know, in, yeah, in the 60s, like, there's just this whole, you know, it's as much a part of the repertoire as, well, as, any, as anything else. Yeah, right, and there you are in the Southwest, you know, it's, I mean, it's not even, it's not even San Francisco, right? You're down there in Los Angeles. Yeah. And um, where was Nesmith from? Texas. He was from Texas, okay. Um, so there you go. Right yeah, he was yeah. on the border. He, you know, he listened to a lot of, yeah. Eccentrically. He would have been very sincere. Yeah, a little more linear. A little more Tom Jones with it, I guess. And this is like, there's parts of this that are very, uh, like John Zorn or Mr. Bungie kind of, like, genre. Yeah. And it, and it, the the reason I bring those guys up is, you know, like, we we talked about, like, the Ween albums where they're sort of parodying, uh, a style of music and, and it's great. They're doing a great job, but you can kind of tell that they're goofing on it a little bit, or they're they're doing it right. They're it's doing not it, sincere. They're doing it just enough so that you can identify that music, whether it's country or, or reggae or something like that. But this is the baddest musicians on earth who can do this backwards and forwards in their sleep. And so when they hop from style to style, it they're nailing it, and it becomes this really sort of surreal like almost like turning the tv dial to a, a different <laughs> thing yeah, yeah and they, they, right and they had they'd have to be able to do it right i mean there could have been some splicing going on with the, you know, the tape but there's very limited things you could do with that but you know. it, no no they yeah they could play it for real yeah. and all live in one take with 30 people in probably one probably on the score it stuff. says you know yeah it switches from yeah, you know, whatever. One twenty BPM to Latin feel. three eighty. Right, right yeah. yeah, Latin feel. Yeah, exactly. country. Right. Double time, half yeah. time, double time. Yeah, <laughs> they're even dialed in after you know that two day period where everybody's just totally feeling it and things start to unravel and you can still yeah hear yeah. them holding it down. They must have had a conductor. Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming, yeah, yeah Shorty Rogers or or Mike himself was you know leading the band. Are these um were these 
the order, the track order, is that the tr- the order in which they were recorded? Oh yeah. Well, on the vinyl, no. When Mike re-released it later, he put it in chronological order so you could theoretically hear the band getting more and more drunk. Yeah. 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 This is like the tonight's the night of, of uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> high production '60s pop music. Uh, but it sounds like you wanted to have a party. Yeah. 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 Well, it sounds like it was a, a fun time was had by all. In fact, um, he didn't count on those geezers being able to hold their booze like that. Though. And did you say how much did he spend on booze? Like 50 grand, yeah. I think, is what so, they said. So, wow. Yeah. That's an and all right that, party. Yeah. Isn't that yeah. what they spent on the record itself? Yeah. 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 So they yeah well, he had it catered by Chasen's. And he, you know, if you're, you're trying to, you know, avoid paying taxes, you're, you'll <laughs> dump whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess you. You're giving it to somebody, one way or the other. Exactly. And and we get something out of it, so. Yeah, yeah. I I don't think he made his money back, but he wasn't going to see it anyways. Right, right, right. Well, shall we move along to yet another interestingly titled track, uh, Tapioca Tundra? This is one of my favorites, actually. Isn't the original... Nesmith approved uh, uh, CD release uh, just dubbed off a vinyl. Yeah. yeah. With some unfortunate artifacts. Yeah, he, uh, he didn't want to see it re released for quite some time. He was really stubborn. Yeah. He ended up re releasing it on his label's video branch, yeah. something like that. Along, it was like a split album with a Time Rider soundtrack, yeah. which would be kind of a cool thing to lock down. Yeah. Up, up, up tempo. Yeah. They definitely have somebody conducting. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of the songs come to a full stop and then start, start back right up. Start back to, up, yeah. So somebody's got to be in charge of that. <laughs> and then the, yeah, and the drums go from what double time or a two two four feel to a four four feel. And the, yeah. yeah. Well, this is like almost uh, not spy jazzy, but like just a l- little bit oh, countryfied yeah. spy yeah, jazz, like kind of. Like this is the. Um, uh, oh, why am I drawing a blank on the guy's name? But the guy that did all the James Bond music, John Barry. John oh, Barry. This Barry. is like the John Barry, like his his like jazz big band before he started doing soundtracks. Are not too far off from this sort of, you know. He's not completely into... Oh, James Burton. <laughs> of course. You could tell that's Jay. Again, you know, you can't have this on in the background because yeah. it will suddenly stop and... If you it's have James Burton, you have to do that. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. yeah. I mean, why would you hire James and not have The master of the Telecaster. Oh, yeah. Chicken, chicken... Just a, 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 a note. Scott and I, in a band we were in called The Milkshake Five, we did make an attempt to cover this song. Um, it's really weird. I mean, the arrangement is really weird. Mm-hmm. Um, For a guy who usually plays three-chord songs, there's some, you know, augmented and diminished in here. Which is, this is also the first song on the record that would have been familiar to anyone since it had come out on the Birds and the Bees and the Monkeys shortly before you came. Hmm. So you could sing along to this. And, yeah. and as well, another very appropriate 
name. Yes, tapioca tundra. <laughs> yeah, not really. Rolls sh- off the tongue nice. Yeah, sure what that means, but you know. He's he's talked about what the song means, what kind and of I drugs still are we don't about? know. Keep in mind, all yeah. these uh, track names would also make equally acceptable band names. Indeed, I, I would go see the Tapioca Tundra. Yeah, open for Carlisle Wheeling. <laughs> Got gotta be taken. Yeah. Probably, yeah. Oh yeah. And the shitty Beatles. And the, the shitty, shitty Beatles. Beatles. The mind just races as to what that could mean, you know. <laughs> it 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 sounds messy. Yeah, it's a, yeah. And as someone who likes tapioca, I'm you know. Even then, you don't you don't want to like a whole field of it. It's, 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 I'm, I'm like imagining the worst case of like mud wrestling, only you know outdoor. It starts, yeah. it starts to turn pretty quick. Oh yeah, that's gonna that's gonna get funky and not in a, a fun way. Too much of a good thing. Mm, yes, yeah, a field is too much. Yes, a tundra. Would, that would be cold, wouldn't it? Freeze, and then you got yeah, frozen tapioca, true. and that. Defeats the whole purpose. Yeah, I, was, I was thinking tapioca ice cream. <laughs> I was thinking maybe it, you spilled it on the counter and it hardened. So there like you, you know, it's like a who knows, right? Isn't there anything. a truck brand called the the Tacoma Tundra? And every time I see that driving by, I think of this song. <laughs> 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 There's a tundra. Ooh, is it? No. <laughs> well, let's let's go on to the next song, which is a uh, another one that had come out already called "Don't Call on Me." The strings going. This is like a, a, a soundtrack for like a, a meat cute or something. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot more toned down. I could definitely ride my bicycle to this in the sunshine. It's the one of one Golden Gate strings or whatever. <laughs> Until we get to this part, and then you know, clearly, just sort of everyone drifts off for a measure, and then <gasps> back again. <laughs> And I have an odd theory about this. On the um, Monkees album, this song is credited to Michael Nesmith and John London. But on this album, it's just credited to Michael Nesmith. I think that one bit where the the music just goes off, John London was the one who came up with that chord there. He took the chord out and (laughs) claimed the song as his own. That's why it sort of just sort of drifts off and everyone just plays random notes for well it's a good way for the wrecking crew folks to reserve their energy yeah build it back up yeah this is more of a breather on the album yeah Like the See, that, like how that bounces you know, around a day in the life thing where you just say go nuts for four bars to the right, orchestra right. and then see what happens. <laughs> Playing uh, frame by frame, but with clarinets. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah I'd like to see the notation. 
Mm -hmm. I, I'm curious what the charts look like, yeah. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of like handwritten notes in there, like added to it. We saw a couple of pictures from the session where they had charts laid out and it looked pretty together. It yeah. was I think they who who was it you said that uh, arranged this? Shorty Rogers. Okay, yeah. Now I think he did I think he did his work like he did on all of his you know, yeah. all of his other professional stuff and Probably the reason they were able to get this done is because that was... Yeah. Well, and the fact that he's, you know, sort of on call already for the monkeys. Like, yeah, sure, I'll arrange this for you. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is also the tune where the uh, very end, the uh, the notation was just make the weirdest sound possible to the guitar players. Yeah. Who knows why that? Yeah. So um, apparently Tommy Tedesco took that uh, instruction and decided... Ah, the flying telecast. Yes. The weirdest thing he could do is just throw his guitar in the air, <laughs> still weirdest, plugged in, coolest, and listen to it smash to the ground. I mean, oddly enough, you can't hear it that well. Nope. You, what you no. mostly hear is the rest of the band cracking up <laughs> yeah. when he does it, which would have been a sight to see. But all right, kids, it's at the very, very end. Rock and rollers, if you're gonna smash an electric guitar. You need to take the cord, and you need to solder it right to the pickup, and you need to tie a bunch of knots in the cord so it doesn't pull out of the body. Pro and tip. then you smash your guitar. Yes. We've learned our lesson. But <laughs> if you just try to smash a functional guitar, it just kind of stops making noise right away. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. It sounds more splashy than an actual guitar hitting the ground. Yeah. Because he hit somebody in the head. <laughs> Yeah, it's probably crowded in that room. He's lucky he didn't, you know, take out an eye. Safety hazard. OSHA. Tommy, you're so crazy. Tommy. <laughs> it was Tommy's son who directed that uh, great documentary that I will take a moment to recommend everyone watch. It's just entitled The Wrecking Crew. It's, you know, 90 oh, minutes. Yeah. Yeah, worth, um, worth your time. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah. I, I watched that. I enjoyed it a lot. I am... Um, Way back in the day, uh, Tommy Tedesco had a regular column in Guitar Player magazine, and I was always fascinated by him because what it, what he would do is is he would say, "Okay, I went to this date, um, you know, you know, some recording session, and it was usually for something, you know, fairly banal, like you know, Charlie's Angels soundtrack or Fall Guy or something, right? Yeah. Right. And um, but um, he would uh, in the in the article he would have the sheet music. That they gave him. Yeah. You know, he'd explain what the instructions were, and then he would explain how he actually played it, which were never the same thing. Yeah. And he would also uh, mark down how long it took and how much he got paid. So, right. so, 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 do you uh, want a, a very yes. precise yes. manual <laughs> how to be a session a, musician? A session musician, right? And, and he also always had good advice about how to, you know, how to, um, how to fit in, right? Yeah. yeah. How to make it happen. But doing what you're told is kind of their job. So yeah. learning how to do that and not. And the, and the only other, you know, aside from the flying guitar there, the only, or the flying telecaster, the only, um, the only other real Tommy Tedesco story I know is that apparently uh, he was hired to do. A Zappa album, um, which which was um, uh, when Zappa was in a wheelchair and he was you know basically doing put a big band together so he could conduct yeah. while his leg was all casted up and that and uh, but anyway um, uh, you know somebody was interviewing Zappa about you know how they were remarking about how quickly or how fast Zappa could play the guitar and he said oh that's ridiculous if you want to see somebody play fast go see Tommy, Tommy Tedesco. Tedesco. 
He oh, said yeah. it was insane yeah. how he could, you know, how how skilled he was. But um, but you don't hear that all the time, right? He's not just um. Well, he. I'm sure most sessions he gets called in for don't call for as fast a playing as you can humanly do. Yeah, they mostly right. call for strum, strum. <laughs> so he was probably the uh, you know the Ingve Melmstein before the guy was born. Yeah. Proto Ingve. Yeah. yeah. Well, shall we move on to the uh, the last track on side two, or is this the first track on side three? I think it's the first track on side two, uh, whatever. It's Don't Cry Now, the first single off the album. Banjo picker. Uh, Doug Dillard. He's a wizard. Doug Dillard. Yeah, he's. Do we know him from anything else? Yeah. I think he's, he's a well-known banjo player. Yeah, he's he's played on a bunch of stuff. He may not be a raking Q regular, but. Sort of a bluegrass marching band. Yeah. He must get really close to the mic, right? When there's a... Yeah, pro- he may be in a separate room, but in order for the, the band to hear him, I don't know how many headphones they had laid out. Or... It's not a problem. Banjo's really loud. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you could just walk closer to the mic and walk back. That's that's bluegrass style for you. Mm-hmm. So these are, yeah, these are Scruggs licks. Like... And I thought I just heard footsteps there. Yeah. <laughs> on a separate track they had four tracks yeah no but i mean i'm sure track space was limited and and carefully assigned mandolin mandolin yeah xylophone (laughs) of course yeah that's perfect. Well, that's a little more train or Wichita sounding than the rest of the album. You remember the, the Rolling Stones, the Satanic Majesty's Request, where we were kind of like, yeah, they just, somebody just dumped out a bunch of instruments on the ground, but nobody could fucking play any of them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but they recorded anyways. Just this is, this is like if they dumped a bunch of random instruments out on the floor and everybody present could play the living hell out of them. <laughs> actually play them, yeah. 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 A team building exercise. That was definitely fun. Cooking Scruggs style banjo. Yeah. It's the only track on here that we don't have a, a vocal version of. No one knows yes. how the the melody goes or what the lyrics are. I'm imagining it's don't cry now. <laughs> but that's all I got. Yeah. Yeah. Well, assuming the, the, the title has anything, has anything to do, to do yeah, with that's the true. lyrics. It could be, you know, eat my he- iguana. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> that's, um, 
Yeah, what was, um, you know, I know he was a guitar player, was uh, Nesmith, songwriter, guitar player, anything else that he, he uh, had a proclivity for? Not really. I mean, he played organ on one song on the Monkees, the Headquarters album, the, the closing track, which apparently, you know, he got a lot of joy out of getting an excuse to do that because he can't do it very well. But yeah. other than that, he's just a... Yeah, the myth, the myth that I had always heard yeah. was that um, you know Nesmith was the only one in the Monkees who could play before the band got together. But I don't know if that's true or not. Peter Tork could play. Peter Tork yeah. could play a lot of different things. He yeah. should play, you know, harpsichord and French horn and banjo. Probably okay, as well so that as clearly was a false myth. No. Yeah. I mean, Mickey Dolenz was a guitar player before he got in the band and was, I don't know, forced into the role of drummer, but he learned how to play, sort of. Right. right, right. <laughs> I mean, he has a touch of polio, so his, he's right-handed but left-footed, so if you ever see Mickey Dolenz play, the... Uh, the kick and the hi-hat are switched around so that the hi-hat's right in the middle and the kick's over on the side. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, so, well, yeah, I mean, you can learn how to play, right? But, well, yeah. I mean, I don't, they weren't selected for their musicianship, though, right? That was part of the, the audition yeah. process, but the audition process was a lot of, you know, can you improv or, you know, because... Can you sing? Can you yeah. sing? And since, you know, they weren't auditioning for specifically written characters, but the characters were going to be sort of... They were... They based were auditioning for can you play musicians. this character on a TV show and yeah. on stage? Yeah, or, or a character. Yeah. 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 yeah, or do you have a character that we could use? Yeah, and I mean, in Peter Tork's case, it was a character that wasn't like himself, but the other three, it was pretty much exaggerated versions of them. Well, so. mm -hmm. whoever's putting this together doesn't really give a crap if they can play music or not because they're just going to manufacture it like they had been doing for everyone else about right. a decade already. Um, pretty pretty effectively. Yeah. So yeah, I don't think it took them a while to even know how to play together. I mean, I I know they could all play, but they never really got a chance to really express themselves as a band. They were busy filming a TV show exactly. and then recording, you know, albums at night, and then yeah, which which right, which reinforces why Mike Nesmith might have wanted to do this. Yes, here's yeah. my chance to get into a studio and have my Go stuff. Nuts. Yeah. Right. Piece front and center. Yeah. Yeah. To yeah. actually do the thing that I have to play. Right, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Do yeah. the thing that I'm pretending to <laughs> pretending do. Pretending to do. <laughs> well, it, and apparently the producers were a little less than scrupulous in telling the, the I hesitate to say band members or cast members, but, you know, the, the group, how much input they would have. I think they were told they would have more input than they did. I think they told a lot of people that they would be in charge of the music just to get the show on the air and then when the show did get on the air and all these different people got together and said, hey, wait, I thought I was in charge of this. It got kind of ugly, which is why, you know, every Monkees album has like three discs worth of bonus tracks on it because everyone thought they were making the album. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, back to like the Monkees seem to catch the most flack for this sort of thing, but whether you're on a TV show or not, I think if you were a popular recording artist at the time, you dealt with exactly the same shit. Yeah, where, you genuinely have no say. You're yeah, just there. Like yeah. you are, you know, you're you're there for a look or a yeah. you know vibe or something. Like you know, you're a personality, and don't worry about it. We have this big building full of awesome musicians who are going to take care of that for you. Yeah, probably probably better just to not go in there until they're done. Yeah, you know? we already have the sound. You just provide the personality. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and they spawned other similar sorts of things too like the partridge family right yeah well from i think they learned their lesson they're not going to give the characters the same name as the actors and we're not going to try and 
put these albums out as by the Partridge Family. It's the soundtrack to the right, Partridge right, Family, right, yeah, so yeah. that you can't rise up and and you know overtake your master as much like the monkeys became <laughs> either Pinocchio or Frankenstein, depending on how you <laughs> look at it. But then there's David Carradine. That is true. Or no, Cassidy. Cassidy. David Cassidy. David Carradine. There is Hold David Carradine. There is a yes. David Carradine in but the world. I was thinking of David a, Cassidy. Well, yeah. Danny Bonaducci put out an album since yeah. they wouldn't yeah. let him on any of the Partridge Family tracks. <laughs> I don't think we need to listen to that, though. <laughs> Instead, let's listen to a While I Cried. Masterpiece Theater. <laughs> there you go. It, you know, this does span a, a large spectrum of genres for an album that's, you know, instrumental versions of country rock songs. Matt, have you been sitting in that quilted leather chair and smoking that cigar this whole time? <laughs> with, a, with a smoking jacket. Where did that fez come from? Just, yeah. <laughs> My smoking Who jacket's a bit afraid I might get a new one. Uh, Alistair Cookie. <laughs> <laughs> Misplaced my monocle. <laughs> Does sound enjoyable. But yes, this is very you know fox hunting season. Indeed. But there's a couple of like weird blue notes every now and then, just so we know what song this is. Like right there. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we're not. It's keeping it anchored. Yeah, this does have that sort of a Beatlesy horn yeah. stuff that was on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like this is, this here, there, and everywhere. Right, right, so. Super George Martin, and it's got the yeah, the George Martin thing, right? They drop a couple of tritones in here and there, so it sounds not bluesy, but like it's about to collapse mm-hmm. on itself. That could be the booze. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a lot of songs. This that, is where the booze starts slipping in here. Yeah. I wonder if Shorty was also drinking while he was arranging. In there. <laughs> yeah. I just, I don't think. Yeah, these just guys, do what you want. I don't think these guys play wrong notes unless you pay them to. Yeah. So. Drums kick in. B bass with flats. <laughs> it's like the musical Kool Aid Man storming in. Oh yeah. So who is playing the bass? Not Carol. No. no. No, Carol wasn't on here. I have a list of musicians. Joe Joe Osborne maybe. Probably. And the Kool Aid Man. <laughs> uh, Chuck Bergenhofer. Okay. No one I know. Mm. Yeah, that gives the uh, the European, the continental flavor to this. There you uh, go. Mm-hmm. And then that <laughs> one <laughs> squawk. <laughs> wow, that's a... notated. Yes. So there's there's that. <laughs> Again, if you heard the original that came out on Instant Replay, which came out after this album. It's it's a a very you know pensive country and western number which I think actually Harry Nilsson did the backing vocals. Would on. we recognize it? Probably not. No. This is one of their sort of post collapse albums that almost nobody bought. <laughs> well, for completists only. Yeah. Yes. Well, they're good albums, and and you know over the years they've been reappraised, but at the time you know the first four Monkeys albums sold a gajillion records, and the next four sold eight. 
total. Well, you know, the, the, the fad had passed, and, and like you said, they had changed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They, they, well, they, they grabbed the means of production and drove it into the ground. Yeah. <laughs> so did the monkeys, like later on down the line, did they have any comeback television specials where they... They, they had one in the mid-90s, directed by Michael Nesmith, which was... I figured as much. Very bizarre, because the premise of the special is that the show never went off the air. This is their like <laughs> 583rd episode spectacular. And all they're trying to do is avoid having to do another plot. So people come up to them and try and get them excited about something, and they say, oh, we already did that back in episode 300. And then they walk off. It seems dark. It yeah. is weird. And then every now and then, it cuts to a shot of a lizard sunning itself on a rock because they've spent too much money on special effects and they can't afford to film anymore. <laughs> it sounds oddly British. It is very... Well, you know, Mike did hang out with uh, like Douglas Adams. Douglas Adams was yeah. a good Terry friend of his. Jones and Terry... Oh, did he? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they were... Yeah. yeah. That's a... That's a yeah. Lizard's a funny and bizarre crew right there. Yeah. It's a good influence yeah. to have. Yeah. So, so um, sort of curious, with, with Nesmith... You know, he did. He was the producer of the film Repo Man. Yes. Which had, uh, you know, an amazing music in there that I believe was selected by the director, um, Alex Cox. Alex Cox. Mm-hmm. Um, but nonetheless, it was um, it was hardcore punk. Yes. At, at a time when when uh, you know punk was was uh, certainly had uh, entered into the ether, but was not mainstream music. Not and, in and, Hollywood. Uh, and I think it had a lot of influence on a lot of people, you know, who were who were looking for something different. I, I was just wondering if Nesmith had any connection to punk rock at all. I, I think Nesmith's connection to Repo Man was mostly he had a lot of money and was willing to spend it on this when no one else in Hollywood would. I don't, I think Nes really wanted to be more involved in the production, was kind of disappointed that, you know, they went off and sort of... Yeah. Yeah. That being producer is basically getting the money to make yeah, it happen. Yeah, he signed yeah. the check, and yeah. he wanted to be involved, but you know they knew what they were doing and didn't really need him other than to sign the check. So yeah, he was just he's proud of it, but concept. yeah, he was yeah he's not really as ownership of it as some of his other projects. So I mean, he also produced uh, the movie Tape Heads with oh yeah, that's right, John Cusack and uh, yeah, it's a very Tim good Robbins. Yeah. Right? Was that the one where they take over a yeah, the, uh, a recording studio or a radio it, station or Airheads something? Airheads is the Adam <laughs> Sandler yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Stephen Schrader yeah. title. That no. one's bizarre. No, no, this a, this oh, is yeah. a different one. There's a different one, Tapeheads? Yeah. Tapeheads. It's about the, the invention of music video, which, you know, Mike was... Who was the director of that one? Oh, well, anyway, yeah. this isn't about tape heads, but no. if you weren't interested, look it up. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Also, if if uh, I mean, watch Repo Man, listen to buy the soundtrack. But the soundtrack has like uh, some of the only commercially available songs by the band The Plugs, which who is, are, yeah. are a fantastic missing link in punk rock history. They recorded two or three more albums that are just fucking great, but they are out of print and probably never will be. Back. You can listen to them all on YouTube and stuff, but as far as buying them, good luck. Um, and the couple of tunes they have on there are great. Yeah, they're mm. they're fantastic. Um, it's like if uh, I smashed uh, Los Lobos and Black Flag together. Yeah, that's Black a good that's tongue. a good descriptor right yeah. there. <laughs> Black Lobos. Black Lobos. Black Lobos. <laughs> well, shall we move on to? Um, Papa Jean's Blues. This one was actually on the Monkees' first album. Thank you. 
they're borrowing from I forget what that song's called that really popular yeah please stand by da, 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 da. yeah what is that Yeah, I think things are getting a little looser. <laughs> yep. It sounds really uh, Quincy Jonesy. Yeah. yeah. As if a couple other spots on here, but then they've snapped into. There's been some banjo, <laughs> or some trumpet volunteer or something that kind of snaps you out of it real mm-hmm. quick. So the original was was country esque, country with Latin percussion. Yeah, kind of Tex-Mex. Yeah. Rhythmic song. Very influential, you know. Unlike the other stuff on the Monkeys' first album, which was very popular, this was more sort of a hidden gem. So do we know who Papa Jean is? No. <laughs> We don't know what any of this is. <laughs> I, I feel like doing some uh, Christmas shopping at uh, Montgomery Ward. <laughs> if only we could. Oh, yeah. Monkey Wards. It's kind of odd that this has one of the more straightforward arrangements since this is the one people would be most familiar with. Or maybe that's why it has the most the kids would be able to sing along to this one. And it's weird because the original version of this song, like, sound is kind of more train-like. Yes, and the train album has the more... So, in the title, the train whistle sings, so if a train whistle could sing... It wouldn't whistle. It would whistle. What would it sing? But is this like what it would sing? Tibetan I mean, throat singing that can whistle and sing yeah, at the same time? Maybe it's one of those cartoon whistles that has the mouth. Exactly. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> Quit in time. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, um, you know, most of these songs, they do have a key, for me, for sure, but... Um, but some, you know, sometimes, you know, it starts to drift into the background. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Well, that is always yeah. a, a danger with instrumental music, particularly instrumental music that wasn't written deliberately to be instrumental. So it has, you know, three verses that if with different lyrics would be different verses. Right. But when you just have a trumpet playing it, it sounds pretty identical by the third time through. What, sonically, this album makes me think of like that there's you have the, your uh, uh, Phil Spector production style and your Quincy Jones kind of production style and they're locked in mortal rock'em sock'em robot style combat with each, combat other. With each other well <laughs> that, that's interesting because one of the one of um, Spector's strategies was when he thought things were sounding too tight or too polished. Oh, he'd wear them down. Yeah, he'd wear them down and make you play it over and over and over again. Sometimes just have multiple instruments, too. You know, get get a few bass players instead of one, just to to kind of... Mess with their heads. Mess with it up a little bit, you know. know, Just to give a little, little, uh, um, um, you know, rub. But but, uh, perhaps this is what's happening, but it's 
caused by alcohol. There you go. Are you saying that Phil Spector wasn't a nice guy? <laughs> no, no, I'm. I uh, um, I know he's not a nice guy, but uh, that wasn't really the point, though. It's like a, you know, I don't know. Um, he could have. Um, well, I guess I was going to say he could be nice, I suppose, but Ronnie Spector tells a different story. But, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, everyone's nice when they're asleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't mean all the time. Sometimes he's unconscious. So. That's a pleasant eight hours. But of you know, the day. you get that. You want you want just a little bit of sloppiness. Yeah, you don't you want, want it to add too character, tight. Yeah. Right, and yeah. uh, with, with with people this good, it's like you said. You could tell them to play wrong notes, but when you're really good, it's hard to not play. Yeah. You know. It's, yeah. it's hard to not focus on what you're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Particularly when it's your job. Right, when yeah. it's your job. They just right. have that discipline kind of ingrained well, in it. Yeah. And you're doing it 40 more than that hours a week. It's, yeah. Yeah, yeah so maybe a, maybe a few beers you're going to... Um, um, I don't know. You'd probably get better. Yeah. <laughs> get experimental. Right. But maybe you're floating around the beat a little bit more. Right? Yeah. A, few years, the, a few years back, I remember going to this play that where the, the characters in the play... I had to had to play uh, bad actors. They were in like a you know scene study workshop or something, acting terribly. Um, and I remember after the play, talking to a couple of people, the actors in the play, it was like, yeah, what's it like to? And they did a, an impressive job of playing bad yeah. bad actors. And they were, you know, they were like, yeah, that was the hardest damn thing that I've done in years was to play. Yeah, like yeah. I don't know how to do something that is the thing that I've dedicated the most time to doing correctly or at a high you know, level of proficiency. And so to be able to play like you've you know, never, never played before or just not that experienced when that's you know, probably the most natural thing you can do is, is difficult. And yeah, probably being trashed. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, you know, like, right, exactly. Like, yeah, that's a little bit. The very, the very Couldn't you know, hurt. Musicians that are really in tune, um, forgive the metaphor, it, with time, yeah. they can uh, you know they can play on the beat, behind the beat, or in front of the beat. But I suppose if you said just play randomly around the beat, like a like a you know like a yeah. bad musician would play, that would be very very difficult. Yeah. To do. You'd almost have to consciously say, okay, this beat I'm going to be a little slow. This yeah. one I'm going <laughs> to jump on. This one. Yeah. Yeah. That would be difficult. Well, shall we? Next, what we got next? You just may be the one. Another one that, you know, that actually came out so people would know. There's that Hogan's Heroes moment. Battle of the Green Berets. Someone's twirling a baton somewhere. Is that the James Burton's back? Yeah, I think so. That's got to be James. That's so damn out of place. That's so fucking out of place. Yeah, James Burton on the field of the Rose Bowl. You know, it is out of place, but if it, if it really was intentional, it's kind of genius because, yeah. um, uh, you know, the kind of military pop and circumstances are a really big part of the South, as, as is, you know, chicken picking. Exactly. Yeah. Telecaster, you know. Two great tastes that maybe shouldn't be that close yeah. to each other. But yeah, everything else is very marching band. I mean, mm-hmm. this is no Tusk one, or something. No, no one involved with Hogan's Heroes ever did anything unsavory. Oh. Even there, I thought that was a bit of the melody of Hogan's Heroes. Yeah. Well, and this song does have 
like two beats of five in the middle of it. So having marching bands try and march in five is a challenge. And isn't there coming up like a really abrupt stop yes. just directly in the middle? Right there. <laughs> Ogan! <laughs> I feel uplifted. There you go. This one does sort of end in almost like a John Cage sort of music concrete experiment where they're all fighting each other and playing their own rhythm and <laughs> musical menagerie. Yes. Like I think I was saying before that Joseph James Burton right at the top there uh, uh, um, uh, juxtaposed with the military march is kind of uh, reminiscent of uh, Eddie Van Halen and Thriller or something. <laughs> it's really kind of it's almost like a sample. Yeah, it's like an unrelated guitar right. track that yeah. they cut and pasted into this. It's two radios tuned to different stations. Or Stevie Ray Vaughan and Let's Dance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is this blues guitar doing here? It's very strange. But, you know, it works. It, it works, feels right. right. Yeah. It worked here. It, yeah, it worked here. I mean, I yeah. want more of it, though. Why did it stop? Yeah, it feels more right after you are halfway through your 50000 bucks worth of booze. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that does help. Yes. And the thing is, you know, if you hear the original, it's, it's nothing like this. Absolutely it's, not. No. I mean, it's a, a pleasant, hooky, fun pop song, but nothing... The, the wildly incongruous stuff is going to yeah. start to seem more and more right as yeah. they, they hit the buffet again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, where it gets here is the guitar player is just doing bang. Ow. Yeah, this is where it all disintegrates. This is one of my favorite parts of the album, actually. The cataclysm. Yeah, maybe it was an uh, anti-war song. Well, apparently the uh, the first title for this uh, album was going to be The World War. Interesting. And then he was going to call it... Which one? No, The World War. Oh, the <laughs> World War. Right, right, right. And then he was going to call it The Pacific Ocean. Huh. So, so it's a that war. seems more tranquil. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how we got to Wichita train whistle, but he had a couple huh. of different... Mm ideas for that. Pacific Ocean would have been more fitting for his New Age yeah, project. Yeah, well, I think that was the third of that trilogy. I don't know if you listen to it. It's a waste of time, the ocean. <laughs> yeah, you can't, you can't the really... prison is great, the garden is a snooze, and the ocean is just an audiobook. I don't bother. A song poem. You, you can't really get a massage to this, can you? No, this is not... Unless you're a complete and utter psychopath who's into that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, it would be. Or you're deaf. <laughs> or you're deaf, yeah. and it doesn't really matter. You got matter. the Bob Harley poster, you're getting a massage to <laughs> marching band <laughs> music. Whatever. Chill vibes. Why not? Yeah, bottom line. Yeah, huh. Yeah, it's just curious that, um, um, is there, did you say this already? Is there is there a recording of this, another recording of this song? Yeah, it's on their um, album headquarters. You just may be the one. All men must... Have someone, have someone. Does it march? No, it's mm -hmm. you know Mickey's playing drums on that, so it's it's yeah, pretty, so yeah. it's pretty straightforward, yeah. So not a lot of rolls on the snare. I can no. see yeah. some old record producer guy just being, you know, what never is going to go out of style. 
marching band. Marching bands. Hey, there are still it's people who are be... heavily, heavily into that. Yeah. There, there's got to be some tongue-in-cheek and, tongue and going on here, though. Yeah, with, I, with clearly the, uh, there's this, this, this is, it's, you know, which is hard to do for an instrumental album. There is some humor here. In the mm-hmm. liner notes, I'd like to thank John Philip Sousa. Yeah. Yes. Inspiration for this album. Well, and like the, you know, in the end, like you said, it, it follows apart the cataclysm. That's why I asked if it was anti-war. Maybe it was this, this attempt to say, well, look, you know. Get out of Vietnam? Or... Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, the best laid plans of men. You yeah, know, always... this is silly, yeah. Like right, Hendrix's yeah. national anthem, and he's yes. trying to reproduce the... But, uh, ammunition, but, but it's not quite overt enough to. Well, I, I'm not sure who he's preaching to because you know the the monkeys fans were generally the younger brothers and sisters of the Beatles fans, so they were like 12 or something. So they generally weren't as concerned about the draft as you know, right? Hendrix's you know audience. Yeah, you'd have to worry about it in a couple of years. Well, uh, that is true. Yeah. Yeah. When did this come out? Uh, 68. Yeah, my brother was drafted in 70. Yeah, you're not off the hook yet. (laughs) We got a ways to go. Well, shall we move on to uh, the second, the penultimate? This is the only song not written by Mike alone. This is written by Mike with uh, Carol King and Jerry Goffin. Fuzz tone? It sounds like it, yeah. Wow. <laughs> this is just crazy instrumentation. <laughs> Flutes and banjos. But I would say this one's a track that sounds a little more closely to the original. That is true. Yeah. I mean, other than this 3-4 part for the chorus. Blasting but... horns, yeah, aside. But it does have sort of a swamp rock feel on the original, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how's the banjo handle the 6-8? I'm going to get back into it. Because he just, he just plays the stabs, probably, right? Yeah, probably. probably just do a pinch in the, the G's. Yeah, this is... The melody is definitely present. It's there, but yeah. it's also a little... Um... Oh, I don't know. It's going to say unsure of itself, but maybe just... Um... Well, most of Mike's melodies are not, you know, great if sung by themselves a cappella. They're right, part right. of the right. larger, right. so... They need the lyrics. They need the backing to really support they sound like they're getting looser. Yeah. Okay, now yeah, we're... See, now... Psychedelic freakout. Now freak they're out. just funning with you. Oh, that was brilliant. <laughs> and then, how fast can you play, Doug? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's completely unrelated. And you can hear the kick drum trying to keep up with it. This is like the merry go bye bye on. Uh, it's like a bad acid Mr. trip. Bungle yeah. record. <laughs> a bad acid trip on Deliverance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh you Lord, sure please don't take us there. Mouth. No. 
Wow. Yeah, that's um, that's a song. <laughs> Apparently, yeah, yeah uh, the, the producers of the monkeys sort of forced Mike to work with some professional songwriters since he was not a professional songwriter. So they sort of like locked him in a closet with Carol King and Jerry Goffin and. This is what they came out with. And that's what came out, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a song that all of them like and none of them liked the experience of writing and refused to talk to each other ever again. So, Well, it, um, check out uh, uh, Mr. Bungle's Disco Volante, the last song on Disco Volante's Merry Go Bye Bye. And I think nothing is what the... But anyways, it's a series of completely unrelated, crazy jazz and metal and country and lounge freakouts that sound a lot like this, and what it has in common with this is it was 100% composed and written before they were in the studio, and they're, <laughs> even though it just sounds like 10 minutes of, of electric Random. guitar fart yeah, noise and, awesome. and thrash freakout stuff, it is completely intentional, completely intentional and orchestrated, right. and so, as I believe this was, which makes <laughs> it extra. Especially as the technology has evolved, it's become so easy to just Splice, oh, splice actually things together. And, so yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. but to have someone say, around. "No, this is what I want to hear, and this is here it is." And we're going to do it. I would have loved do to do it live. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no way realistically they could have taken this 60 piece band on tour, but that would have been something to see. Oh yeah, yeah. to be a fly on the wall recording this. Yeah, one. And just see the banjo getting ready, right? And then um, <laughs> <laughs> sort of fighting it out. I just want some of their buffet and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was well, just yeah. thinking that. Yeah. I was, I was yeah, we had some of that catered yeah. food. I wonder how many friends they brought along. It's just... There you go. Hey, bring the wife and kids. Don't, don't, don't worry about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I think they had to record in like a, a, a hall or something, not a usual, re, you know, studio. I think they studio. had a pretty big-ass live room. Because, I mean, they were doing yeah. all the spectacy stuff pretty much same, yeah. it does sound, same way. It does sound really live. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I mean... A lively room is what I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. there's lots of cavernous quality. Yeah. Well, shall we move on to the the last track? You told me. A bass kazoo, <laughs> tuba. like an oboe or yeah. something. Yeah, tuba or yeah. I remember a bassoon. Yeah, how <laughs> Blaine was talking that some of the double reed players had like because they had like caviar stuck in their reeds because they were like chomping down all this. Oh yeah, <laughs> nice food as much as they could. <laughs> Got to clear the old caviar valve. Oh, that is that is that's a sound I want a sample of. <laughs> Yeah, this is clearly the drunkiest of the, the songs. I mean, this album as a whole is just a party. This is just the whole theme. Yeah, you can see girls go-go dancing to this and like miniskirts with fringe on them. If the Wichita train were real, it would be a crazy train. Yes, it'd be a party train. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Everybody do the monkey. Well, so is this a this is like a weird missing link for some like John Zorn kind of crazy like stuff? Not as 
I don't know how influential it was because I don't know who heard yeah, it. Yeah, but it's like, like it's kind of cut from the same thing where yeah. it's like almost more of a writing exercise. Yeah, well, like we got eight soloists going simultaneously here. Yeah, it had to have been influenced by whatever was going on. Right? Yeah, the same sort of things that were inspiring that kind of experimental music. Yeah, certainly must have. Uh, crept its way in here a little bit. Yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of elements of like, just how far can we push this all over we here. We got horse whinnies in there. And suddenly we're going to the burlesque club. <laughs> Come on, someone's twirling a feather boa to this part. <laughs> Coming up next on stage four. See, I miss the days when Strip clubs had music like this and not just, you know, poison. Buried in there is some wild guitar, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Everyone is just... It's kind of seasick, though. Yeah, no doubt. I imagine a pretty lady popping out of a giant rum cage. That seems appropriate. America drinks and goes home. <laughs> I think if you listen very closely, the very last thing you can hear on this record is someone going, let's eat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I did hear that. <laughs> Which I think sums up the album in a lot of that, ways. Uh, and, and um, you know, as, as um, we know, other people probably know too, that um, Frank Zappa seemed to be enamored with, to a certain degree, with the monkeys and the whole phenomenon. I think he appreciated their artificiality. Yeah. Right, right. And, uh, but, uh, when, when, uh, before Frank died, he put out, he was able to um, have a record released full of his, his instrumental music, yeah. right, uh, his orchestral music, and uh, he was able to get a bunch of the, the um, uh, musicians from this European group called the Ensemble Mulberry, um, and uh, they uh, came out to his studio, and he would have them do things like put the end of their oboe in a bucket of water and play it so they could record it. And it made the most um, obnoxious and rude <laughs> noises, sounds. right? Yeah, farting sounds. And this reminds me of that. And it kind of makes me, you know, I mean, I, I kind of doubt that he you know, got the idea from that. But at the yeah. same time, it's like, this is, these these instruments can make strange noises. Before, let's make them make strange noises. Yeah, let's see Wait, what they can do. Way yeah, before yeah. Frank was, so there, I mean, there definitely are 20th and even, you know, 19th century composery people who had, um, you know, I used to play the bassoon and there was music that I've performed where in the, there were directions to basically, you know, the bassoon comes apart like a clarinet does, but to take your horn in half and and blow into it and play this stuff and since you're you know lost all the length of the the right, tubes so there it, it, you know you're pretty much the 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 keys and the buttons and things don't really line up with anything sensically anymore so you're pretty much just blowing all these like weird overtones and things and it, it sounds really wacky and crazy but yeah yeah there is a hundred something year old piece of music that was telling me to do sure this. sure yeah yeah, um, yeah i so. can see that yeah yeah, so there's a long tradition. There's a long music. tradition of that, yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. And, it, and it's never been super commercial, but it is sort of part of the, the, the cutting edge of somebody figures out what sounds you can make, and then somebody else 20 years later figures out how to use those sounds in a pleasant yeah, manner. exactly, yeah. But yeah, it's part of the process. Or, I mean, in, in classical music, there's a lot of, uh, you know, I think Bach wrote, you know, stuff for 
the string bass where it's like, yeah, play a C. And it's like, well, that's not a note that we have. And it's like, not my problem. You know, there's <laughs> you figure it even, out. Even, even amongst the, 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 you know, heavy classical people, there's a tradition of being like, hey, you know, this, you know, instrument, play this note that you don't have or can't really make on your instrument. It's your problem. Yeah. <laughs> have fun. So. And, and, you know, now that we have samplers and synthesizers and such, I don't know if that gets done anymore, really, which is kind of a shame. I mean, yeah, it's kind of a shame. How many, on the other hand, you can do, the things you can manipulate sound with are, you know, exponentially. Right, right. Well, and if you can, you know, and if you could, if you could get someone to make the noise, you could always make a sample. Right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or something close to it, you can tweak the sample and right. turn it into the noise. So. How many drummers does it take to screw in a light bulb? None. They have machines for that now. Yeah. <laughs> Sad. Sad. So this was done by live musicians, and it is. I. I don't think this would have worked if it were just some guy wonking around in his studio creating this kind of weird cacophony, which I. I you know, would have been cheaper. <laughs> but well, and this kind of thing is, as I was saying when we started this, I, I think it's a bit of a. It's a bit of a lost art. Um, I assume it still gets done, but you know this uh, this making instrumentals out of popular tunes, yeah, and and having it being as a saleable a saleable record that people oh, yeah. enjoy mm-hmm. um, was it was very popular in the '60s, and it and it, did, it kind of fell out of flavor. I mean, I know there was the Muzak stuff, but but it was meant to be a little more creative than yeah. that. Like, like you know, Floyd like the, Kramer. And or even even like the Ventures did, yeah. did lots of stuff like there that. There are a lot know. of bands that do that yeah. present day. They're more niche as everything is these days, but like the band Dirty Loops does these kind of shreddy jazz fusion-y kind of versions of you know lady gaga tunes and things like that that are meticulously oh, yeah, yeah. arranged. You know, it's, yeah. it's a thing, but it's not... at the time that this was made, that was a, that was the kind of shit your parents would go out and buy. Right, yeah. exactly. You know, it was it was at a level of popularity that I'm not. Sh- I'm yeah, like pretty just... out of touch with popular music these days, but I, I'm pretty sure that's not not, a not thing. that you know. Might yeah. Still be, yeah, but at least well, right. It, but not in this particular style, I yeah. guess. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah. There's this band called Casu- Casualties of Jazz, and they released a Black Sabbath album oh yeah. yeah there's that whole you know, yeah. picking on tribute series that's right, like right, yeah. nothing but you know if you want to hear your favorite songs without vocals but banjos you can get everything from nickelback to you know Ooh. 311 take your pick why <laughs> the lullaby series oh too. yeah it's true you, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Rockabye baby, you can get white stripe lullabies, you can get I would recommend this over that, I think. Yeah. Yes. Well this is is I think meant to be paid attention to. A lot of instrumental music I think is meant to be background music and this is not background music it will jar you awake on <laughs> As occasion we were talking about the like you know somebody could you know some musicians who you know had the capability to play all right could have just made this you know wherever in a garage somewhere and it's like well at the time they really couldn't have Mm-mm. you really had to have uh you know a, a big ass pre, pro studio and people who knew how to run all that stuff. Yeah, you needed fifty to, grand and sixty eight dollars to to be <laughs> able to yeah re- record you know any of the stuff at the time. There was no you know we're we're not at a point where you could have just gone and made this in your garage or in your whatever. So 
So you have to pay, like, how many musicians? Like 144. It, it was a lot. <laughs> it was and they're all getting yeah. scale, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he booked it deliberately on the weekend, so they're getting scale and a half. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Well, again, he's, he's trying to spend his money here. So. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to, yeah, and he's obviously... Well, and he likes the musicians. He thought it'd be yeah, a yeah. fun time for them as well as him. And, you know, the, the record-buying public, less of a concern, but they can enjoy it as well. <laughs> I don't know. When I've hired musician friends to play on stuff of mine, it, uh, it's, it's usually more like, yeah, I have a 12-pack and a pizza over at yeah, my house. Yeah, it's, so we it's can the hang same. Out and do the thing. It's uh, the same as you give someone to helping you move. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, I've got nothing else to do Friday. Why yeah. don't come over? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I can have it catered. Well, the rich are different from us. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I hear they're better. Oh, yes. I hear yeah. they're better than us. Yeah. Well, they have more money. That would explain a lot. But, yeah. Well, I, I'm not sure how... I'm, have you listened to... Okay, we're going to have to... <laughs> taking a moment. We're having a fugue state here. There you go. Uh, how does this compare to the rest of Michael Nesbitt's catalog? <laughs> is it related at all? <laughs> I mean, the songs are still written by him. It has as much in common with the rest of his catalog as Repo Man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, if you like Mike's stuff, this is not a good place to start. No. It's definitely proof that anything he wanted to dump a lot of money into was worth its time. Yeah. You know, this is, this is an awesome album. I really like it. If you're a, like I keep coming back to Mr. Bungle, but if you like Mr. Bungle or, uh, John Zorn kind of thrash jazz stuff, or if you kind of like the loungy, uh, uh, Quincy Jones, Herbie Mann kind of stuff, like this is a fun, this is like a kind of twisted version of that stuff. Um, it's great. It's musically really, yeah. really interesting. It's pretty indicative of how uh, or what kind of quirky and creative mindset Nesmith really has and how that stands yeah. out amongst the whole. Well, and I think it also is an exemplar of why he needed to be in the Monkees. I know a lot of people think he might have been better off without him, but he needed the Monkees for their bankroll. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. when he does his this solo stuff made. later, it's all pretty much, you know, acoustic guitar, bass, drums, and the lap steel. But, you know, his stuff that he recorded with the Monkees, you know, 90% of which didn't see the light of day at the time, when he has the budget to hire the Wrecking Crew, not just this album, but, you know, all the the tracks he recorded and submitted for Monkees albums that got rejected over the years and then ended up on bonus tracks. He's got some wild, crazy stuff out there. Even even if this is just like a car car wreck that you can't stop looking at, it's worth it for that. Yeah, it, it really yeah, it is. Just, um, it was, the story behind it just enhances the yeah enhances the experience. So I have to ask now. Um, he's saying he's from Texas. Do you know what part? West Texas, East Texas. I think he's from. Uh, was it Houston? Houston or Dallas? I think it was one of the big two. Yeah, one of the big two. I want to say Dallas. Yeah, I think it may be Dallas. Okay, yeah. yeah. So Central Texas. Yeah, but yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, his mother invented whiteout. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's uh, yeah. I did. I did. So know he that, did but, get. Uh, he did. Was had more that, money yeah. to spend later in his life. Oh, too. I would assume. I mean, who knows what she got for it? But I would assume that had to have been a million dollar idea. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. He Multi million like dollar fifty seven million or something. Yeah. Well, was a he lot. was the only child, and she was a single mother, so he inherited all of it. And I think more of his money comes from 
you know, white out the monkeys by a significant percentage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Well, the re- recording contracts were notoriously fair at the time. So. Well, and, you know, he was only getting two or three tracks per record anyway, so. Still, that would make you eccentric, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, just that experience of being in the monkeys and then having a little too much money. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess that'll wrap it up for uh, this week's episode. Um, don't forget we are on Facebook if you want to you know, discuss the album. We usually post links in our Facebook group about other stuff that's relevant to said album. It's amusing. And you know, we have an Instagram and a Twitter, which are less amusing, but they do exist. And you know, we're on Spotify and Stitcher and, most importantly, iTunes. If you want to give us a five-star review, we have five five-star reviews now. So... That's 25 stars. I think if we get 100 stars, we can buy a chocolate bar or something. I don't know. We'd appreciate it. We could use the chocolate. Um, anyway, uh, that'll mm. yeah take uh, care of us for this week. I'm Scott Livingston. Matthew Marr. Logan Renard. Now, uh, Rebecca, is there anything you want to plug? Anything you want to say to the people or plug person? Plug some stuff. Well, um, yeah, like I said, I'm part of the Swallow Hill Music Association. I'm a hostess for concerts on select weekends and during the week and help out with the open stage that happens once a month. So um, I am off today, which is why I'm so lucky to come in and sit in with you guys. Um, but next week, you can see me do the thing. I'm working for Mr. Robin Hitchcock. So. There, wow. That should be fun. That's Swallow Hill. Right? Swallow Hill. Swallow Denver, Hill in Colorado. Denver, Colorado. Denver, Colorado. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, if you Yale, play any... Yale and Broadway, roughly? Is that's, that, that's correct. Okay. Also, uh, wanted to slip in a little plug for my significant other. Some big news. He's been working for three years on getting the rhinoceros building back oh yeah and so doors We've are officially been... open they're selling memberships now which is oh thing. well that those of you who've been in denver for more than three years know the the struggles and triumphs and uh yeah that is a we are yeah, all grateful to have rhinoceros three years music, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, there's yeah. not enough of them in denver and that was one of the premier ones so getting it back is you know is something of a relief to some of us, I would say. So I've been um, probably going to help out with a lot of that um, cool. or try to help out as much as I can. And as should all of you, they're always taking volunteers. And if you're a musician and you've been wondering about booking status for that place, uh, hit them up. Yeah. It's now's the time. Sweet. Sweet. So, yes, definitely check that out. And um, Good news. Until next week. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Hey, uh, come to the Cabal Gallery on April 13th. April 13th. Probably yes. be out by then? Probably, right? Yeah, yeah. This is this is all instrumental April. So. There's a Gort yes. versus Goom is playing, as well as Bolonium, former former guests yes. of Bonnie the and Devo Richard. Episode. Uh, and, uh, and there's going to be a, a bicycle-themed art show with a bike parade and a bunch of custom bikes that I built and some other cool stuff. So come, uh, come to that. It's going to be fun. Yes, definitely, definitely check that out. Yes. And, uh, anyone else have anything to plug? Okay, well, well then uh, we'll see you next week when we try to figure out who this artist is. Mm-hmm.